Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Jerusalem U's The Teacher's Lounge, where we keep you connected to what's going on in Israel and hopefully give you some insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, who is here as always with co-host Alan Goldman, who's on his way out the door. How's it going, Alan? Well, not literally out the door, but uh, tonight I'm flying, so I think you are. Yeah, flying to Poland. Right. Fun times to be flying to Poland if we're following the news. Well, hopefully uh, we can do a future episode about Poland and its policies in the news and your trips to Poland and how that all works. Yeah, so if you see the new law that they're all up in arms about will actually pass and be signed by the president, so I guess. The new law which says? That uh, there are certain things that you can't say in terms of implicating Poles in the Holocaust. So while Poland changes its laws about what you can say at a concentration camp, we have our own situation here in Israel that is, uh, I guess, somewhat related. Uh, would you like to introduce our guest? Sure. It would be my great pleasure and honor. Uh, Rabbi Tamara Shagas, from, uh, who teaches with us at Young Judea, eight-year course, uh, a colleague who also um, works at the Rabbis for Human Rights and has been ex- very, very involved with the um, current um, huge issue in Israel, which I'm not sure if it, Jews in, in outside of Israel are as tapped in. Um, I mean, I know some leadership are, but if people are following the news of the um, uh, refugees and migrant workers and um, about 35,000 of them in the country, and the government has passed law recently to um, uh, throw them out of the country, basically. Um, or help them move. I guess it depends on which side of the coin you're on. Um, so Tamara has been very involved in that. We thought it would be great if she would join us to like uh, share some of her knowledge and what's going, what's happening in the field, and what's going on. All right. Thanks, Tamara. We're done. We're going to just man talk. No, just kidding. How's it going, Tamara? Very well. Thank you. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for talking about what you're doing. Can you just give us sort of what you're involved in, like even today, like where, what, what this project that you're working on, can you describe it? The project I'm working on is a private initiative. It's called Miklat Israel or Shelter Israel. And we started it almost two weeks ago. The, the idea is to give a responsible response from civil society to the asylum, uh, asylum seekers crisis that we're having because of what Alan said, that the government decided to deport. Uh, it won't be the 35, between 35 and 38,000 asylum seekers at once. The plan is to deport 10,000 people in the, in one year. And there's also some groups that are, be, that have, um, Haredim, that they are ultra orthodox. No, that's Haridim. Haridim is that they stand out. They're they're exceptions. They're uh, with a gimel. We're having a problem with a gimel. Nes gadol. With a with there's. It's your it's your it's your it's your New Jersey accent. I think that's coming out. That's confusing him. Absolutely, absolutely. The exceptions. There are five groups that are that have exceptions: children, women. People that are recognized as victims of trafficking or torture on their way to Israel, not in Israel. That's an important thing to say. And those who have op- the pet- still an uh, pr- open process for their petition to become refugees. So how did these 3,500 people end up here in Israel? 35, how did these 35,000 people end up here in Israel? They crossed the border illegally. From? 
from Egypt. They cross the border from Sinai. They're coming. The groups we're talking about is African asylum seekers from Eritrea, most of them, and a smaller group from Sudan. And they come through Sinai. Now, why in the world would African asylum seekers come to Israel, of all places? It seems like an odd place if you're an Eritrean and you're suffering. Why would you come to Israel? Well, the first thing that I can say is that uh, in the times when the former Prime Minister Olmert was the Prime Minister of Israel, he granted uh, refugee status to over 400 asylum seekers from Sudan. No questions asked. Uh, as you can imagine, when someone is recognized as a refugee and there are other people uh, looking for places where to go, that makes a big buzz. And it's like, bring your family and kids. You are accept- accepted here as a refugee. Uh, the Eritreans, same thing. They go from one place to the other, trying to find where uh, it's better for them to stay. In Egypt, there's over uh, half a million asylum seekers. And in Egypt, they get the knowledge, like the knowledge or the awareness that there is a democratic state and it belongs to the Jewish people and that these are people that suffered a lot and have the experience of being refugees. And if when you listen to them, it's like they actually identified with us. There's also a physical reason. No, until very recently, there was no real border fence along the entire length of the uh, in the desert between Egypt and Israel. So it was actually physically easier to just walk into Israel. Yes, that's also that's also true. It's uh, it's been uh, about 3 years since we built a fence and there're no more asylum seekers crossing the border. We're not taking any like no one is coming in. Um I don't know if that makes that much sense because like why aren't why weren't people from Sinai crossing and coming into Israel? Like the fact that there was no fence. Well, there was. There was a lot of drug trafficking and things like that. And human trafficking, all sorts of criminal. Yeah. Yeah, but but not people trying to come in and stay here. No, Maybe the Egyptians no, have no, no interest in coming no, into just Israel. Just a few years ago, there was over fifty thousand asylum seekers or migrant workers were in Israel. I mean, there's been a and then yeah. once the fence went up there, it's almost stopped. So. Now, part of what complicates this issue, and to a certain extent, I think we're going to play devil's advocate with you on this and sort of ask you, uh, you can't pull it off? Yeah. Uh, well, no, I think, I think it's important because, because this issue gets filtered through a lot of different, well, I guess I'll mix my metaphor. I don't know. It's filtered through different lenses. It's different from different perspectives. I think it's important to, to clarify. To clarify. And, and, you know, you hear these arguments so that, for example, the argument from one of the arguments from the government is, and, and they're planning now to give these people like three thousand dollars, stick them on a plane and dump them in Uganda or Rwanda, which they've determined is safe for them. That's their basic plan, with all the exceptions that you mentioned earlier. And the government is saying, well, they came here illegally; they're not seeking refuge or asylum from oppression; they're just seeking better economic opportunity, and they came illegally. So we're doing what any government would do, which is you you got to throw out illegal immigrants. It's not different than really any other country struggling with illegal immigration. So the first thing I will say is that the these people are filing petitions asking for asylum. 
okay? And uh, unlike in other Western democracies, Israel has only checked in 10 years 1% of all of the forms that have been um, handed in for people uh, asking for for asylum and uh, trying to get the refugee status. In the last 10 years, only 11, only 11 people got um, the status of refugee. And you have to understand that if we compare it to Holland or Germany or Canada or America, Eritreans get the status of refugee up to like a, a, between 80 and 90 percent. Because even though, as you said, Rwanda and Uganda might be safe places to send these people to, they don't come from uh, Rwanda or Uganda. They come from Eritrea and Sudan. I'm sure you know what happens, what's going on in Eritrea and Sudan. There's Before you shoot me with another question, <laughs> I just want to say that most of the Eritreans are Christians. That's another thing that has been said a lot here. These are African Muslims and the Jewish majority. And what will we do? And are they terrorists? Um, Eritrea has... Um, uh, the, 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 what makes it things more complicated there is that the um, Islamic forces are the ones in, in power and they don't like the Africans and they come after anyone who is not Muslim. So most of the Eritreans that are in Israel now are Christians. And Sudan, I mean, come on, they come from Darfur. It's been long enough for, no we wouldn't say no more. So I think uh, so. It seems, sounds to me what you're saying is the the first step here, at least in terms of Israel, is that Israel's not done due process. There's no real like how can you determine that these are refugees or uh, asylum seekers or economic, you know. If, if the government wants to claim that it's the vast majority are just economic illegal immigrants, they have to show us in good faith that they've really checked that out thoroughly. Seems kind of sketchy considering what we know and the, where they're coming from, that that's the case, that they're just looking to make, you know, a new living in a, in a nice new country when they're fleeing from places where they're they're undergoing you know, monstrous suppression. It's a shaky case the government's making. Right. So so that's the first step, I guess, it sounds like you're asking for, is let, let the government do due process and let's figure this out. I mean, we're not really talking about a lot of people, right? I was, how many people, how many citizens are there in the state of Israel? Eight million plus. I don't remember exactly. That and we're talking about 35,000 refugees. Yeah, we're history teachers, so don't have to do the math. But I will tell you that I mentioned this earlier that struck me yesterday or today was that when I made Aliyah in, the, in uh, 8990, so there was a point where there were 30,000 um, uh, immigrants coming a month from the former Soviet Union. So that's the amount of people we're talking about that came a month. I think the highest was like 31,000, something like that, 32,000, that, essentially. So it's not an enormous amount that, of people that uh, Israel has carried before. I think it was something like in what Operation Solomon or, you know, 15,000 came in a weekend. But let's be honest. The state of Israel was, was, was asking for that, was helping to facilitate that because they were, however you define, they were Jewishly connected when they were pulling them in. These... Eritreans aren't aren't Jewish, and that's I think the difference that we're we're not helping people because they're from a different ethnicity than we are, right? Isn't that really what it comes down to? 
Uh, I think that's one of the things that the government claims and one of the things that we hear from uh, different groups in Israeli society. Uh, it's true. They are not Jews, but we are. So that's, I think that's the big challenge. We are. And uh, it's like, I don't need to get in, uh, into yeah, like quote, quote, quoting every single book of, uh, of the Torah and talking about how we are supposed to treat the stranger. We were strangers in the land of Egypt or who are we bringing in? Uh, as a citizen among you will be the stranger that lives, uh, with you. And again, I just want to remind your listeners <laughs> that uh, in the Bible, when we talk about Ger, it's not uh, Ger Tzedek, it's not someone who converted to Judaism, but someone who is a stranger who belongs to a different group who's not Jewish. I, I don't know what the word exactly would be. In other words, a foreigner, really. In other words, when, when, a, when a person who isn't Jewish lives in your homeland, here is how you have to treat them. That's what the biblical word ger is referring to. We use it today for people who convert to Judaism, but that's a later rabbinic use of the term. Right. I mean, there's a difference between ger tzedek and ger toshav. Um, uh, Rabbi Sachs translates as stranger, but it's someone who's different. That sounds harsh. Yeah, it does. Exactly. Um, uh, so like, wait, wait. Let me just see if I understand Tamara's point here. So you're saying that a Jewish state should behave in ways that are consonant and, and, and consistent with Jewish traditional values and sources and texts. Is that what you're arguing, Rabbi? Uh, not only that. I think what I'm. I think one of the things that the government claims is this this game we're all the time playing about demography and uh, how many are we and how many are the others, no matter who they are. Uh, what I am worried about is in order to have a Jewish majority, how much of your Jewish values are you willing to give up? You know, it's, it's the majority in terms of numbers and who is living here more important than the Jewishness of our people and the state? What will we de decide? And I again, I think that if we are... Uh, because we are such an amazing country, a strong democracy of people that have built uh, like from nothing, we, be, we became this amazing place. I am not worried about 35,000 asylum seekers living among us. What I want, what I, I am worried about is the fact that the government also decided to put most of them in a very small specific area, which is South Tel Aviv which is already uh, uh, an area where people have economic and social <laughs> challenges and there's prostitution. Well, you have many, and you have many people living in the street. And, from and, Yes, and to the situation that South Tel Aviv had, not now, but for decades, right. you're also adding almost 5,000 asylum seekers, mostly single men, all of them black, Okay, it's important to say African, these African asylum seekers are black and we do Who believe. Don't yeah. speak the language, don't have a clear economic ladder up to help them with their lives. No. And so when inevitably some of them turn to crime to, to survive, the government then says, well, we can't let them in, they're criminals. 
Uh, yes, we of course don't want to say that uh, being a criminal is a way to deal with, but it's not. It's not even. Uh, it's not just the the becoming a criminal because you can't like provide for yourself. It's also the culture. Some of these people are very well educated people that are running away from Sudan or from Eritrea. Others are people from small villages in the middle of nowhere in their country. So when you talk about Western culture, it's it's kind of a clash, a shock. That's what Nahon, that's what absorption in Israel was about. You need to help people understand who you are, what you're like. I think I think what adds to this, if we go back to this idea of the government not really doing due process, the government really never came up with a plan for any of this. And all these people are here. So in fact, uh, why do you think that? Well, why? Why? No. Why didn't they? they? they tell you, but but uh, I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tamara, that they, they, they it has put them in criminal status by definition because by not doing due process, they have no means to work. Um, so they're not real. They're really like statusless people. So if they're working actually in like good job, like like a regular job, let's say dishwasher in a in a restaurant, they're actually criminals because they're not allowed to do that because the government never went through this process and made a plan. Why do I think they didn't do it? I think because a lot of the ways that things happen here, it's a, and it's an Israeli mindset of um, of not not confronting things of. Just letting things, uh, yeah, Beseder, like it'll kind of work itself out until it doesn't. And then you kind of, and then you have to come, and then when you're confronted with it, then you deal with it. Um, and now yeah. it's being politically used because certain pol- politici- politicians in the government want to use it as a, as a tool for. Uh, so you're nicer than me. I'm suspicious, and maybe this isn't fair, and maybe this isn't appropriate. I think they don't deal with it because they assume it will get worse. And then they'll be able to deal with it as a bigger problem that they can solve in a way they want, rather than along the way trying to make it work in a functional way. They, they wait till it really gets broken, and then they can talk about deporting. Nah, you, you give them too much credit for actually thinking. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> I, I think. Yeah. I, I think, and uh, I might surprise you now because you didn't think about this. I'm just bringing it up to you. Israel doesn't have a, a migration laws. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's where the problem begins, right? But I when you have say, South Tel Aviv, when you have a, when you have hundreds of, of of homeless black people living in South Tel Aviv, the government you would think would say, "Well, we should do something about this," and whether that means developing a you know a refugee program or just confront th- these people were left, and and non government organizations are, are were rushing in and trying to help as many of the people as they could. But wh- where was the government? Wait, so you are saying. That if there has been a problem of a law that hasn't been written and put in order for so, 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 so many years, when something happens and you need it, the government should actually put it in place? I guess I'm saying I think that's what governments are supposed to do. Do I need to remind you that we have a committee trying to write a constitution for 70 years? Well, hold on. Let's be fair. The, The Declaration of Independence says we would have that constitution done by October of 48. So we're only seven. Yeah, I guess that's it. Seventy years. Yeah, yeah. But this is—I mean, this is such a that that theoretically, you know, a lot of countries don't have constitutions, and you can function. Although I think that's not a healthy way to function. When you have an enormous—I mean, this is a living problem. This is not theoretical. This is real, honest to God problem that a lot of NGOs are working on, and the government has essentially 
to a large extent just ignored. Well, that's one of the, the challenges that, uh, that the NGOs have. The NGOs working with asylum seekers have been covering the basics that asylum seekers need instead of giving them an extra because the government was not giving them. Most of them don't have permission to work. They don't have. Uh, these are people who have suffered torture, have walked from Eritrea through all these places, come to Israel. They are in. Many of them have post-traumatic disorder. They have all sorts of health issues. They don't have health care. Just to remind us all, in Israel, all of Israeli residents have healthcare, right? right? So it's not like in other places in the world. And these are people that actually need it and they need it a lot and they don't have it. This is a humanitarian uh, cause. It's a, it's a humanitarian issue. And I think that Israel is much better than what we are. Uh, you know what? Not necessarily Israel. The Israeli government needs to do something because Israeli society is showing that they are not willing to support the government on this decision. I, mean, I, I think I, I, I started talking about something else, but the initiative Miklat Israel that we're doing actually calls, reaches out to Israeli society to take in asylum seekers. The idea is that in this way, first of all, because of the fact that in two weeks we have over 600 families from all over the country who have offered their houses to bring in people. Uh, that will help us spread the asylum seekers in different places in the country, which will uh, make uh, the situation in South Tel Aviv a little bit easier. And the other thing is the Israelis will finally know who these people are. They will be there. Um, there will be with them, know their stories, understand where they come from, what they have been through. It's like having an id, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a witness. Well, it changes that we very often, we abstract people to ideas and then we can dismiss them. But when we see real people, we can't dismiss them at all. Exactly. So those are the main uh, points that we are trying to make. First of all, to, the, to spread uh, the asylum seekers around the country. And the second thing is make a connection. Give the asylum seekers a place that they can feel that someone cares about them and it's home and it's not just what the government is saying. And giving Israelis the opportunity to get to know who these people are. So uh, something you struck me when you said, you know, this is a humanitarian issue, is that we do a very good job, Israel, of responding to humanitarian issues outside of Israel, right? Earthquake in Nepal, um, uh, in Haiti, or... Why do Israelis do that? And uh, because we see that that is part of the role that we we have a country that has the abilities and the, uh, and the um, um, economic uh, structure to do it. So we invested because we think we're supposed to help the world. <laughs> it's just a natural Israeli thing to want to be a blessing to the world. And we do it in out of proportion from other neighbor, other countries that are bigger than us or closer to where the disaster was. So you think that's just in the Israeli nature? I think that that – yeah. I mean I think that's the Jewish values that Tamara was talking about before, um, the traditional Jewish values. And now it's time to – you know. I know. I'm just doing that annoying podcast thing where I frame the question yeah, as if – yeah. yeah, I got you. You didn't have to you – know, no, it's like a like radio lab. They always do. They ask the question like they're stupid. It gets annoying, but I'm just trying to keep it going. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, go ahead. No, so Who are these Jews you speak of? No, no so I, and I think that now, you know, that this why, – why do we see this differently? Why should this be differently? It's a humanitarian crisis and we should get up and respond to it. It probably would be actually cheaper than all that, you know, if it was done properly because people could be put into the workforce. They can work. They can 
Um, you have to argue that it's easier for me to go and help somebody who isn't my neighbor than to help somebody by letting them be my neighbor because I don't want them for a neighbor. Isn't that what it is? There's a very famous Jew that said, in Navive Iro, there's no, there's no, Pro- no profit, profit in his hometown. His hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's easier to go outside. I would like to say that Kimitzion, that it's about what can happen, like what can happen in Zion, what can happen here that can actually bring light onto the nations. One of the other things that we're trying to do is like we, we could actually come out great of this. We could show the world that it's not all about uh, what they all all the time talk, you know, and the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. That we that that is very complicated. But when it comes to human lives, the Jewish state knows what to do. We can take in asylum seekers. We can give them places around the country and have the, We can train them so that when they go back to Africa, okay, let's show them what a startup nation is. Let's teach them about democracy so that both Sudan and Eritrea, when when things are getting better, have thousands of people that will come back and make their, that place a better a, a better place for them and for others. And we would be like great partners of Africa. That is like an amazing thing that could happen for Israel. Isn't that being a light onto the nations? Like why why are we choosing to do the wrong thing for the wrong reasons instead of doing the right thing for the wrong for the right mm-hmm. reasons? Well, you were putting that. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask a question about that. So I think it's fear. And one of the big fears is that opening a flood, like opening a Pandora's box or a floodgates, that all of a sudden now you're going to get thousands more who want to come here. What do you our borders are closed. No one has, we don't have people coming in for over, uh, for almost three years. So I don't think that that's the issue. And again, think about the fact that Ameri- uh, the United States of America has taken in the last year, in the last year, in 2017, they took 70,000 asylum seekers in. 70,000 in one year. And we have had, like, for 15 years, asylum seekers, and we only took 11 in. And we are, we are the people. We, we, we don't recognize them. We, we, we are the people that know about this. We have been refugees. We have, looked, we have been the ones who told, you, who told us, like... For 2,000 yeah. years, we were refugees. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, if we, don't take in, if we don't help these refugees, then we don't ever get to complain about people not taking us in when we needed help, right? Like that, that's gone. Seems pretty clear to me. Yeah, I mean. yeah in other words, if, if you know the Nazis were after us, no nation would take us in. Well, that's fair because that's what we did when we had Eritreans. I think it's one of those things, you know, when like people, especially like the younger people say, no, but I don't understand where was the world when X, Y, Z was happening? Not even like, for, I'm not talking about, the, uh, about Shoah, okay? Anything. Like, wh- where were you? Where were you when, where, I'm Argentinian, okay? Where were you when 30,000 people disappeared in Argentina? Where were you? Who were you looking at? What was happening in the world? So I think this is our, like, this is our time. This is our chance. Where are we? It's the same as now. It's, they were, well, they were distracted by different things. You know, when Bambi was a hit Disney movie, Jews were being shoved into ovens. So if you're, if you're going to the movie and your life is going on as normal, and you read a line in the paper, but it doesn't particularly bother you because you're not facing it. So you're distracted by things. And then if you're confronted with it, you say, 
well, but what about crime? What about immigration? What about changing the nature of, of the community? And then, you know, and then you turn to people and you say, I, I've had this a number of times where you turn to somebody and say, well, that's what they said about the Jews. That's why they did. Those are the same reasons they didn't let you. No, Jews are different. They knew the Jews were good and would be helpful. I said, no. They said the Jews are unemployed, unemployable. They'll be a drain on society. They are all the same excuses. We became a people by taking other people in. That's that's the actual truth, right? We were we were a family, a family, and there were and there were twelve kids, but we were a family. We actually became a people, taking people in. Who were the Who were the Hebrews that left Egypt? How many of them were Jewish? Like we became a people by taking. That's the amazing thing about the Jewish people. Look how different we all are. And again, I'm not saying this is not trying to say like let's bring them in and become a part of us because Hasbe uh, Khalil. I'm not calling for uh, conversion of all the asylum seekers unless they want to. Unless they want to. <laughs> but uh, we're certainly not proselytizing and telling them you should become. Uh, right. Of course not. But but it, it's a little bit of. Uh, responsibility on our on our behalf on the 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 Jewish state and Jewish society and the Jewish people too, the Jewish people too. Because this is another thing. If many of the people who listen to you listen from diaspora, this is something that we need to pay attention to because this will come back to be uh, like. So yeah, uh, this failure will. Hear, we will hear about this. I, th- I think it's also noteworthy to to say that you know Menachem Begin when he became prime minister, if his first act of government was le- was um, opening the doors to the Vietnamese boat people, who I remember very clearly growing up of them wandering around the seas and you know all those stories we had heard about our you know well, they were so desperate to escape yeah. they were drowning at sea and you know shaky boats and, and menachem begin scooped up as many as he could and you know for years as a zionist teacher a teacher of zionism i have used that example as look look you know we learn our path look at menachem begin he, he he made that statement isn't that so powerful and now you know, and what happened to those Vietnamese people? Many stayed here until they were able to move on and continue their lives in other places, and some stayed. Um, and all, and how have we? How has the Likud party seemingly changed? That's a question. Uh, you know, a, a question. Um, that I don't think there's an answer to. But that, that and look, to me, when people say, "Well, what are you going to do? You're going to take in every refugee in the world, and you can't." Well, of course not. The fact that you can't save everybody doesn't mean you shouldn't save anybody. I don't understand that argument. And, and I, you were saying something earlier about this, fear, this demographic fear is somewhat unzionistic. What, what did you mean by that? When you, before we were recording, you were mentioning to me. Uh, I think that one of the big challenges that Israeli society and Israeli leadership have is to stop living and thinking as a minority and diasporic group of Jews that live together in the land of Israel. This is not, that's not who we are. We need to be proud of who we are. We know how strong we are. We also need to take, uh, if, if 35,000 asylum seekers put in danger the Jewishness of the state of Israel, then the state of Israel is in big trouble. In big trouble. Because we, like, what, what have we done? What have we done for 70 years? That, that's the problem of the Jewish people. 35,000 
people. If that, if that ruins everything, then we haven't done a very good job putting it together. If that is supposed to ruin everything, then uh, no, we, it seems that we haven't done a great, and I think that we have done a great job and that actually we're in a, in a point where this is one of the things that we can do. These we can do. We can take them in. So if Israel isn't a refuge for victims and actually a place where Jews can live and breathe and be free and lead, then we should take a leadership role in how to handle, really, I mean, we live in an age where re- refugees are, are real refugees, not just people refugees. migrating. It's, it's the biggest, we have the biggest number of refugees on earth since World War II. Exactly. exactly. And the other thing that I want to say is like, you know, let's stop thinking that the world really revolves uh, around us. Other countries are taking hundreds of thousands of people and there are millions of, of asylum seekers and refugees all over the place, all over the place. In the Middle East, let's talk about Jordan, see, like with what's going on in Syria. So we shouldn't be taking in millions of, Arab, you know, tens of thousands of Arab refugees because that's more complicated. But here we have African refugees. That's that should be much simpler, I would think. I agree with you. Yeah, I think I was supposed to be more of a devil's advocate, but yeah. you're right, it is hard. Yeah, it's very hard. It's it's a very sensitive and a very emotional issue. Yeah, yeah. Can I offer for any of the people listening to you, we have materials written about this in English, in Hebrew. If they want to, like, you just need to send an email to miklatisrael at gmail.com. That's M-I-K-L-A-T, Israel with I, not Y, at uh, gmail.com. And uh, if you want to talk about it with, or learn more about it and be involved in uh, some way, we'll be happy to answer more questions. Usually the episode comes out on Thursday. Can you send me like contact things or, or things for me to post with this? Sure, I will. Okay, cool. I'll just say, you know, not for nothing, as long as we're, as, as long as we're looking at this from a very Jewish lens. King David was a descendant of a Moabite woman who was taken in in Judea by people who, you know, looked out for her. And even King David needed an Irmiklat. Mm-hmm. A shelter, a place to go for shelter. And that's, yeah, I really, I guess <laughs> I'm a terrible devil's advocate. I'm sorry, everybody. But thank you so much, Tamara. I really appreciate it. Um you guys don't know how much fun we have working with Tamara, but uh, and this episode didn't really show because we all got very like it's a very tense issue. Yeah. We should just do a, a hanging out episode. I don't know what that would be, <laughs> but thank you so much for agreeing to be uh, in this episode. Planning class. <laughs> I don't want to record that. I don't want anyone. I don't want anyone to hear that. Uh, no, but the truth is, I, I think it would be very interesting for people to hear about you. You know, coming from Argentina and Alian, you just have interesting perspectives in general. But this is a pretty uh, powerful, important issue that's going on today. So we really appreciate your insight, and we appreciate all your hard work. Thank you for having me, and for all the good work you do for the Jewish people. <laughs> she says, giggling. <laughs> she can't. She can't even be sincere <laughs> for a soundbite. <laughs> Uh, Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Okay, everyone. Uh, Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Jerusalem U Podcast, The Teacher's Lounge. Teacher's Lounge is produced by Matthew Lippman. You can subscribe to our podcast pretty much anywhere where you can find any podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. 
And we'd really appreciate if you would give us feedback and ratings in those places and recommend it to your friends. Thanks. Bye-bye.